Hello and welcome to another episode of the Buckle Bomb Show here at Bomb Media Productions. I'm your host, Bobby, and I'm so happy to be here to talk professional wrestling with you once again. As always, I am joined by my broadcast partner, Anthony Rohn. Tony, how you doing, buddy? Bobby, I'm doing fantastic, brother. I can't wait to dive into everything weird and strange that's happening. A lot in of wrestling. fun stuff. We had some good wrestling this week. Uh, a lot of stuff I'm excited to talk about, including my favorite wrestler made his return from injury this week. Uh, CM Punk uh, apparently is all fine after a nice report that uh, you mentioned last week on the show that it looks like he might be out for longer than originally thought. Um, you and I speculated in text matches that that may have been a rumor planted in there to make the surprise that much better this week. Um, it came after a fantastic uh, title match for the interim AAW championship between Moxley and Chris Jericho, the Lionheart Chris Jericho. Um, what did you think of the match? That was absolutely fantastic, bloody. Um, that Jericho gash looked pretty nasty. Um, obviously, with the pulling out of the ring with Moxley was uh, was uh, pretty gory. And then the Appreciation Society beatdown of Mox afterwards, which led into the punk uh, return coming down to make the save. And then, of course, the stare down and the bird given by Mox uh, to end the show. What did you think of the end of Dynamite here? You know, I thought the end of Dynamite this week was... Um... You know, we especially with AEW and professional wrestling, we talk a lot about unnecessary, gratuitous blood and guts, right? I feel like the amount of blood that happened within the Jericho-Moxley match was just spot on for the money. Granted, it wouldn't have been so much if it weren't for the Chris Jericho uh, unplanned spot. Um, I think the earring spot was... Exactly what Triple H and Batista wish could have happened in their no-holds-barred match at WrestleMania a couple years ago. Uh, man, but just the second that happened, when Jericho hit that exposed turnbuckle, I texted you and I was like, dude, I know you're delayed, but I had to give him, a, I had to give you a blood <laughs> You did. You also spoiled Punk returning for me. I would have marked the fuck out for that. And you're like, Punk! I'm like, I'm 20 minutes behind you. <laughs> But well, that's what made yeah, me give you the yeah. blood. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it. I don't mind blood. The only problem, a little bit of a problem, I had was that there was also blood to start the show. And again, I don't mind blood in wrestling, but you know, you don't. If you, you do it too much, it doesn't become special anymore. So that's the one thing I think AEW's got to be careful of here. You know, you have blood multiple times on a single show. You know, certainly at least once or twice a month there's blood. They want to be. I want to be. I want them to be a little bit more careful and picky about when they do it. This match was fine to have it in, especially the type of match that it was, and the fact that they were going for a more old school Lionheart Chris Jericho. Um. But then, of course, the return of Punk at the end. Uh, where where do you see this uh, Moxley uh, feud, if you want to call it that, going? Uh, do you think uh, 
I, mean, I think we'll obviously get a hell of a match. Um, and side note, it was nice to see Jericho and Punk interact a little bit here. Not much, but, you know, they had a nice, they have some history in WWE that was, and, you know, through podcast and Twitter barbs back and forth during Punk's hiatus. But uh, nice to see them have a little bit of an interaction. Like to see them have, uh, at some point, maybe an AEW feud that can incorporate you know all of the their history, but that was that's an aside, and you can just you can bring that up too when you discuss uh, what I want to talk about here, which is where you see Mox and Punk going in the future. Is it an all-out match? You know, I think we're heading towards all-out with Punk and Mox. Um, as far as winner goes, though, man, it's so hard to decide for multiple reasons. You had Mox getting screwed out of the AEW, AEW Heavyweight Championship belt originally when he lost to Kenny Omega. And then you have Punk, who is only in this position because of an injury. I feel like this is a match perhaps Tony Khan wanted, just not right away. It was kind of a uh, shitty hand that was dealt to them, and they had no choice but to push this match sooner than they probably originally wanted. Uh Maybe. I, I think... And I don't mean to cut you off, Punk. but I think um, we'll get back to what you, what you want to say. I do think, you know, not, you say that, I do think Mox and Punk might have been the plan for All Out. Because you had Forbidden Door, uh, you know, and who he may have gone up against there. And I think it would have gone to Punk and Mox after that anyway. But go ahead and continue. Yeah, I just don't see how it'd be feasible to have Tanahashi coming in every week, though, if you were interim AEW champion. So, yeah, man, I, I think it's got to be Punk just for sake of injury, but then you got to worry about how much it's going to hurt Mox because Mox is, you know, obviously right now one of your most over characters in the Blackpool Combat Club is one of the best stables they have going. Oh, geez, man. And then to your point about him interacting with Jericho for a second there, I mean, you know, we can go back to the NXT wannabe group chat that got brought up in court. I mean, best in the world at what I don't know. There's so many storyline potential there for Punk and Jericho in the future. But, man, if this match is going to take place and all out, like I think we're all predicting, it's going to be a bar burner. I mean, Mox can't have a bad match. I'm convinced at this point. Yeah, I'm not as high on Mox as most people. I think he's a little too gimmicky at times. And he's... I, I like a lot of what he does, but he's also sometimes... He goes for the shock a little more than he needs to. Um, I think this match with Jericho was fantastic, on the other hand. but um, And I think uh, him and Punk will be... Even better. Uh, you know, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, we'll see uh, We'll see how we get there. That's that's the interesting part to me, is how we get there. And the story that will be told in the meantime. Because we know <laughs> these two are going to tell a really good story. Uh, you already have your story written in. The Shield were CM Punk's protectors, basically, at yeah, one point. Yeah, if you want to reference that. Yeah. Moxley... Moxley was one of the members of the Shield that was handpicked by CM Punk. I mean, 
if you want to take it that route, because, you know, obviously right now WWE is not against mentioning people that aren't in the company anymore. I don't think any things that aren't within their company. Your storyline is handpicked for you. All right, yeah, it's it's all there. There's certainly a lot of different ways they can go with this. Uh, Moxley playing a little bit of the heel here, you know, with the disrespect towards Punk, and as you see right there, flipping the bird to Punk. But that's also a little bit of that Blackpool Combat Club character, um, just the whole, of the whole group. They got that harder edge. You got to earn respect from them. I, I like I like the whole deal here, and I'm really excited. As a big Punk mark, I'm excited to see where it goes. All right. Hey, not to, uh, not no, to cut absolutely. you off there. I don't think that uh, Moxie's going to be the heel in this. To be honest with you, I don't think you actually need... No, 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 no. I, I think he's going to be playing more of that role, but I don't think he's going to be a heel per se. I think it'll be a face-to-face -face match. But, but oh, you know, he's going to be he's going to be the tweener because... And he's going to be the one within the match playing more of the heel role and getting the heat on Punk a little bit more in the match because more than likely... Do we know where All Out is? Is it in Chicago? Have they said yet for sure? It's typically in Chicago. Oh, God, why is it... It typically me? is, but I think I think they hadn't announced it yet. Yeah, no, it was big news. No, they've already announced it. But it was a press release that they released... I think it was like a month ago where they announced that it wasn't going to be in Chicago this year. I could be wrong. Well, let's see here. Uh, nope, it's in, it's going to be in Chicago. At the now, at the now arena. Yeah, then, it's not going to be in the, it's not going to be in the stadium. It's not, or it's not going to be, um, in the big arena. It's going to be at the now right. arena. It's not, it's, yeah, it's not going to be at Allstate. Um, yeah, maybe that's what the press release was in regards to. But yeah, at that point you have no choice but to have Mox with more of an edge and heel tendency. Because you know stuff. Punk's not getting booed. You can't, yeah. You can't make you can't make punk a heel in Chicago. No, I mean, for the love of God, that's like trying to make Ric Flair a heel in yeah, North Carolina. For sure, you can't do it. All right, that'll do it for that topic right there. We're both excited about CM Punk returning. Up next, we're going to talk about the weird way they brought back Dexter Loomis on Raw. First off, excited to have Dexter Loomis back. I think he's He's a presence, and he's a, got a look that I think is fantastic, especially with that porn stash that <laughs> that uh, I think will be great for him in the WWE. But the way they brought him back was it kind of was this viral thing. I didn't even notice it, and I was watching Raw live. I didn't notice it until I saw on Twitter. Everyone talk about what what was that with that car crash in the background of the. Uh, Kevin Owens promo, which you and I talked about that Kevin Owens promo, and oh, how great Kevin Owens is, and neither one of us caught what was happening in the background, where there was a car crash, and I'll bring up the pictures here, uh, <clears throat> right there, and you had Dewdrop and Nikki Ash in the scene, uh, excuse me, Nikki A.S.H. In, in the scene, and, you know, some security people talking about it, and then later on in the show, you had this segment where in the background, the, tr the car's getting towed. 
And let me go back to that real quick. In the background, the car is getting towed as they're doing this uh, backstage segment in the foreground. And if you watch in the background, someone runs up to all the security people that are sitting there by, by the tow truck, says something to them, and all of a sudden they start running towards the camera. And as they're finishing their segment up, they run by everyone and like it's like they interrupt the filming of the promo. It's the way they kind of played it. And it, I actually liked what Bailey did here. She was like, it's like she took charge. Like there was a situation that maybe some of the girls weren't like, oh, I don't, do we do this again? What's going on? She's like, nope, follow me and kind of come on. So it, they made it look real. And then, of course, we end up coming to the main event of Raw, which was a hell of a match with AJ Styles. And we would, after the match, we would have this really interesting framing here where they had, well, where they had AJ Styles win the match and he was in the corner. Uh, and he would kind of notice the commotion. Now, normally they would obviously frame it out, but, it, you know, it was storyline. And of someone getting arrested in the front row and he'd lift his head up and then you hear the announcers go, is that... Is that Dexter Loomis? And then they were just then they just moved on real quick, and they never shown it. And it was obviously meant to be a little viral. Obviously, the way they framed the end, it, it was it was not real. But they didn't need it to. They already had the viral. What's going on with the car in the background? That set up this end here of Dexter Loomis uh, and his return to Raw. What do you what do you think is going on here? Where do you think this is going? You know, I'm not saying this is where it's going, but somebody did bring up an interesting point on Twitter. And their interesting point was just the fact that they posted a GIF of the NXT black and gold brand invading Monday Night Raw back in the day when they were doing the three-way Survivor Series. You had Shawn Michaels and HBK riding on the tank with the roster walking in behind them. Kind of seems like they're setting up for this... uh, weird invasion of released stars that are coming back to take their vengeance on the company now that Vince is no longer there. Um, I do got to say, though, the Easter eggs, the nuance of these Easter eggs was absolutely beautiful. It's one of those blinking you miss it kind of things. It's going to have me more attentive to what's happening in the background yeah. on Raw and SmackDown yeah. from now on. Um, and the other thing I got to say, and I know you're not, you may not agree with this, the reminiscence of the old is that Dexter Loomis, the way they originally shot it with AJ being in the ring, kind of making what's happening in the front row of fire shot Supercard of honor, 2018 Enzo Amore and big cash jumped the guardrail during a match. Nobody knew if it was a worker's yeah. shoot. It had that vibe going on with it. And to be honest with you, I absolutely, oh, loved I, it. I loved it because too, yeah. even I, even when I was talking to you in our private chat, I was questioning whether or not this was work or shoot. Uh, so whatever they have going on right now, and again, I'm not trying to, you know, give too much credit because this is the honeymoon phase still of the new regime, but it's really hard to not like everything we're seeing. And especially in today's world of social media and Twitter, and you can get something, because that's how I found out. I'm sure that's how... Millions or thousands of people found out that, like us, that weren't even paying attention to what was going on in the background. It was just 
as I do the John Cena. But in the background, you know, I, I didn't see it. I couldn't see it. And I, but you flip through Twitter and it's starting to go viral as more and more people realize what's going on. And then you get to the, the next segment with, with Bailey and Oscar and, and Alexa and all that. And, you know, the story's continuing in the background that never really gets touched on or brought up. And it, it because is well, this the I mean, thing? Did something it. really happen? Uh, and they're still filming there for some reason? Or, or you know, is this leading to something? And we literally did not know until the last minute of Raw, which was great. Well, let's face it. I mean, you have a promo going on with Kevin Owens, one of the most elite yeah. talkers in all of professional wrestling. Nine times out of ten, when he has a microphone in front of his face, you're not paying attention to dick all else because every word that comes out of his mouth is either reminiscent of, is he a, is this a pipe bomb? Is he fucking allowed to say that? Is he going into business for himself? He's that kind of speaker on the mic where it's very mesmerizing. Then you have this faction with EO Sky, Dakota Kai, and Bailey, which is just one of those, like, oh, my God, things still because here's two women one was on their way out of the company. One was for sure gone. Coming back, being led by the tutelage of Bailey, who was injured. So it's very polarizing in that way. So it's very hard to focus on anything going on behind them. Now, with all that said, we all agree that we loved it. There's one piece of closure that I want out of all of this. Is Dexter Loomis and Indy Hartwell still married, or did they get a divorce? <laughs> is she available? I do believe Indy Hartwell had a little... Uh... On uh, on Twitter, she had a nice little reaction. I think it was just a single emoji that was like the uh, suggestive face. If I'm not if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> oh no, no, it was just a, it was just a thumbs up emoji. That's all it was. That she posted right when it happened. <laughs> hey, uh, didn't she? Didn't she on NXT TV? After Loomis was released, didn't she do something with the ring, if I'm not mistaken? Or I I don't know if she did anything with the ring or not. I remember after he was released, she had like a little Twitter meltdown. Uh, that was a shoot for, uh, or I, I mean, that was a work in regards to her husband being released and everything like yeah. that. Uh, I don't know what happened with the ring. I don't recall. I mean, it was that. weird because they were really in the middle of this story and they released... Loomis, and, you know, there's a rash of them. Parker Boudreaux, who uh, we can talk about in our quick jabs if we want, about him being all elite now. But, uh, yeah, they're in the middle of this story with four of them, and two of the people get released. That was that was <coughs> interesting. Um, Steph DeLander was the other one that got released. That was a part of that story, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, what was her... What was her name? Per Persia Parada. All I remember... All I know is that release needed to happen for both of them at the time. Because if you recall, the last thing they did was at the NXT pay-per-view that was from Texas uh, before, I, I forget which pay-per-view it was, but all they could think of to do with Dexter Loomis, the one guy who has all the potential in the world, is to have a clothing competition about who looked well, better. Well, that and have him making out with Indy Hartwell every, every show. 
But um, <laughs> that was that was when, and he was supposed to be like this Patrick Bateman right. serial killer kind of guy. It was so bizarre how things go. That off was that was when they had like a like a six week span, and everyone blamed Bruce Pritchard, and you know who knows because he had taken over, but where NXT got a little horny for a while there. You had you had the rise of Nikita Lions, which I know worked for you. And we might talk about a little bit in the next subject here, but and then yeah, and then this whole that whole weird foursome of yeah, Ugh. I think they're moving on from that. I hope anyway. Yeah, <laughs> I hope because NXT was getting a lot like good old Jr. on Twitter after not being <laughs> there for a little bit. It was getting right. yeah. All right. Uh, moving on from JR and his late night Twitter, we will go on to the WWE finally putting together their women's tag team championship tournament. Uh, are you happy that this is actually happening? Do we think this would have happened at all if Vince was still around? And what do you think of the participants of the tournament? Obviously, we've already had a couple of matches. I know you're a little tepid about the inclusion of a certain NXT team because we're going to see NXT ourselves live and you uh, might want to see that piece of business in person from the second row where we'll be sitting. Um, what do you think of this uh, Tag Team Championship tournament? This is the only time I'm going to say this. I fucking miss Vince McMahon. Never would have happened if Vince was around. Not a fucking prayer. And now because of that, there's a chance I'm not going to see my future ex-wife when we go see <laughs> NXT. The fucking bullshit, man. Fucking bullshit. But no, this is good for women's professional wrestling. The women's tag team division is something that is much needed within WWE because of how much talent they have. And as we all know, you can't possibly have all of the women in a storyline for the women's championship. Just not going to fucking happen. So it gives all the other women something else to do. In the meantime, God, I hate to say this. I hope Nikita Lyons goes out in the first round. Fuck. You know, from the reports that we're getting about Nikita Lyons in from the, uh, I believe it was the Observer originally, where Nikita, they're talking about how high they are on Nikita Lyons. She's got a big social media following. I may have popped into one of her live Instagrams and saw that you were in there as well a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> so her doing makeup or something and you were sitting there watching it. I popped in to see what was going on and left, but I saw that you were in there. I'm like, oh, that's fun. Um, well, because every now and then you'll pop in and she's doing like boxing or jujitsu or something or she's getting ready for a photo shoot. It's like, what the fuck does this woman not do? Do you know that she's a fucking like critically acclaimed latin artist too yeah it's insane she's she's talented she looks good like, she's only like what 21 22 years old if that she's insanely young yeah something like that so you know don't 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 you say it like that <laughs> don't don't you put that on me ricky bobby oh <laughs> uh, but yeah now of course my favorite uh, who I think is going to win in this tournament. Because, again, I've been saying, you know, you need to put over the Bailey, Io Sky, Dakota Kai team. You need They need to go over and everything. And until, at least until uh, WrestleMania. 
when you get to a Bailey Becky Lynch match. But I think Io Sky, excuse me, uh, Io Sky and Dakota Kai, I think they're going to be the winners. They're going to be your tag team champions. Um, we already got them in a match against Tamina and Dana, and they won. And on SmackDown, we got uh, Raquel Rodriguez, who they're also, push, also pushing, and Alaya versus uh, Zayali and Shotzi. What did you think of the two matches we've had so far, one on Raw, one on SmackDown? You know, I, I didn't get to watch SmackDown. Uh, a lot of shit going on this weekend. But uh, the one I saw in Raw, fantastic. Uh, who came out on top was Zaylee and Shotzi. Uh, it was Raquel and Aaliyah. Oh, God damn. Well, that shoots that theory in the foot. Because in a perfect world, you know, obviously when you look at these brackets, what would put the most eyes on what's happening is if you had Alexa Bliss and Asuka on the other side of the bracket, and that's who met in the final for the Women's Tag Team Championship. Since it obviously wasn't going to go that way, I would have liked to have seen Zia Lee and Shotzi in the final and have Shotzi turn on Zia Lee and team up with the female NWO, basically. Yeah, yeah, I can, I but, can uh, see Zia Lee and Shotzi doing that. But, again, if, if they're going to be a part of that at all, I mean, the others are on Raw. So they would be like a SmackDown extension of that. But I don't think – it's not an NWO – it's just this, these three wrestlers that are on Raw that are working together. Um, I would rather Zaylee and Shotzi because I like both of them, especially Shotzi. Um, I like I'd like to see them uh, get pushed in their own right. Um, now, what do you think? We'll, we'll start with uh, next week's Raw. What do you think? We've got uh, Alexa Bliss and Asuka versus Nikki Ash and Dewdrop. Who do you think's coming out on top there? Uh, clearly, you're going to push Alexa Bliss and Asuka. Uh, that's going to get you to the semifinals and get Dakota Kai and Eosky against their current rivals. Um, this Nikki Ash and Dujat team, it has potential to make sense. You just got to get Nikki to drop that Ash gimmick. Let her go back to being Nikki Cross. Let her go back to being that brutal hellion that she was when she was with, uh, oh, God, what the hell was the name of that team that Eric Young was the lead of? Uh, I, regardless, I know, I know you know where I'm going about, with yeah. that. But, yeah, I would love to see the return of, of Nikki Cross and Piper Niven. I think that would be fantastic. But yeah. And you already have Dewdrop in the heel gimmick. So the name makes no sense with what she's actually doing on the card. And think about Nikki, all the work that she's put in, she has transformed her body so much that she's almost unrecognizable than what she was when she came yeah. into NXT. So you just put them together as an ass-kicking female duo from the UK who doesn't give a shit money. Yeah, I... I... Don't disagree there. It might be a bridge too far or a little too late to really, especially with Dewdrop, to kind of go back to Piper. You can keep her as Dewdrop, I guess, but just make it almost like a Buffy the Vampire Slayer thing. She's got a weird name, but it's actually kind of 
opposite. She's such a badass, and she's got this silly name that it, it can actually work, too, I think. Um, and then, uh, of course, on SmackDown next week, we'll have Natalia and Sonya Deville going against the babyface team from NXT, Nikita Lyons and Zoe Stark. Uh, uh, Zoe Stark returning from injury here. What do you think? Uh, how do you think this is going to play out? You know, honestly, I've never seen much of Zoe Stark. Um, Me either. The way they're the way they're pushing Nikita Lyons right now, though, you would have to imagine that they're probably going to the finals. Uh, then again, you know, Natalia is on a kind of a resurgence within the women's division right now. Ooh, that's tough. Yeah. I think, I mean, you've got Natalia and Sonya in there. There are two really good hands in the ring. Natalia, obviously. Um, Nikita and Zoe are younger. I think they will. I think they'll have a really good showing. They'll bring Natalia to the brink, and then in the end, Sonya they'll they'll do something underhanded and heelish to get the win. I think seems the most likely scenario. Yeah. But it, it can it can go either yeah, way. Yeah, you know the weird thing is, the weird thing is though is like it can go either way. But in terms of like Nikita Lyons, like I I believe at this point I have seen like all of her matches in NXT so far. For being so young and so green into wrestling, there's not really that crack in her armor like you would see with like most green women coming in. We've talked about this with um, yeah Jade Cargill. Phenomenal talent, room to improve. When you watch a Nikita Lyons match, fantastic talent. You know she's going to get better the more she goes on. But thus far, there hasn't been anything that's been kind of like, oh, that was a botch or this kind of messed up. So keeping her in the tag team division also is something that I don't see being a real necessary thing for her. She's going to have her own jet. She's going to have her own jetpack as soon as she gets to NXT by the sound of things. Eventually, anyway. I think they'll get to a Mandy Rose-Nikita Lions feud. Um, so I think it's going to be Natalia. Yeah. Though I can, cer- I can certainly... You get to pro- s- go ahead. You can, prote- you can protect her in that loss, too, because you can have Zoe take the pinfall. Yeah. Therefore, you're not really diminishing Nikita Lions' character. Right. Part. Um, but I, I could still see them going to the next round. And then you have, and that would be an intriguing matchup, uh, Nikita Lyons and Raquel Rodriguez, two, two young stars going against each other here in a tag team match. That would be, that would be interesting and someone, something I could see having, uh, threads for the future being laid out. Because you could, because Nikita Lyons and Raquel Rodriguez, if they both stick around and are successful, you know, you could see them wrestling for years and years and years. Um, so that could be an intriguing matchup too. That maybe maybe they want to push Nikita and say, hey, they got they got by Natalia and Sonya Deville, and okay, they didn't they didn't beat Raquel and Aaliyah, but who knows? On the other hand, just looking from pure star power, Natalia and Sonya are the only ones on that SmackDown side I see going all the way to the final. If we look at it from a pure star power perspective. Yeah, and I think you had to look at it from a star power perspective because 
you know, God damn. Yeah, there's not really anybody on this list that I could see Triple H pushing for the purpose of NXT nostalgia, you know? I mean, not even just nostalgia. It's just a matter of, you know, you're gonna if if Io Sky and Dakota Kai are gonna be the ones in the finals, who are they going against? It's going to be a more established pair that they're gonna go over. They're not gonna put Io Sky and Dakota Kai against, you know, Nikita and Zoe because who are Nikita and Zoe to the base Raw and SmackDown audience? They're just getting introduced to them. So Io Sky and Dakota Kai. Going over, I say that, but now I'm thinking about it. That's going to be a heel on heel match. We can't really do that either. Yeah, but at the same time, too, though, it's one of those card subject to change kind of deals. You may have it in your head that they're not going to win the women's tag team championship with Nikita Lyons and Zoe Stark, but depending on how hot the crowd is for them. Like, if they get out there and they realize, like, oh, holy shit, they actually know Nikita Lyons, I've, Zoe Stark, vice versa, then could it be because of their popularity that they switch what plans they had and they end up in the finals against Yo Sky and I, Dakota Kai? I mean, you never know. Um, I mean, the, the only other thing I could see, I could see them putting pushing Raquel Rodriguez and Alaya... I would just want, I would just imagine if I'm right about Eosky and Dakota Kai becoming champions here, you want to put them over someone that the fans really love to get more heat. Maybe that could be Nikita. Maybe, because Nikita's got such a following, maybe she blows up in her SmackDown match and. I mean, obviously going into the match, they'll have a winner and a loser already set, but they're not going to change that in the middle of the match. But if she is set to go over her and Zoe here, they could say, oh, maybe we will put them in the finals against Sky and Kai. Kai and Ty? What? And, (laughs) you know, that would lead to at least a face-heel match. But who knows? Maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe Alexa and Asuka end up being champions here uh, and beating Eosky and Dakota Kai because that's that's what we're headed towards because that's the feud anyway, and that's in the semifinals. So, yeah, but it's still it's something that needs protection though, man. They need to be protected. You can't. It would have to be some real fuckery like Eosky and Dakota Kai beat the shit out of them with like steel chairs or something like that. Do something to get themselves disqualified from the match. Yeah, I can see that. I guess I, I just I want I want Eosky Dakota Kai. I want them to be champions. I think that's the way to move forward with their story um, and the best way to use the tag team titles right now. But we'll see. We'll see. A lot of intriguing possibilities with this that we're talking about here. But it's time for us to move on. Um, the only thing I'll say is Nikita Lyons, if she blows up on SmackDown, we won't be seeing her on September 30th because she'll never be back on NXT. Uh, and I know that breaks your heart. (laughs) All right, we'll move on to our next and last main subject here. Uh, the Intercontinental Championship. 
here early on in this show, uh, you were talking a lot about the uh, secondary titles in WWE, in particular the Intercontinental title, and how it didn't matter anymore, and it no one cared. It was booked like shit. Um, here on SmackDown, it got a big push. They did the same thing they did for the they've been doing for the U.S. title. They showed a video package of its glorious history and put it over, and then they main evented SmackDown with a fantastic title match for the for the Intercontinental Championship between Gunther and uh, uh, Shinsuke Nakamura. A name escaped me for a moment. I apologize. Fantastic match between them that saw Gunther go over. Uh, how excited are you for this? I, I'm really excited, especially, you know, more reports surfacing this week. Granted, I think you take all of them with a grain of salt, but for the most part, what it seems like is Vince just hated everybody that had a title on him if you weren't related to The Rock. Uh, it was coming out that Vince started souring on the Gunther character. Which, rightfully so, should he be Walter still? I think so. That's up for interpretation. But, as you know, how passionate I was about something happening with the Intercontinental Championship. Yeah. It seemed that it was becoming one of those titles that was forgotten about. And then heading into SummerSlam, I see title wasn't even on the card. But I had a little glimpse of hope because they had JBL do that video package for the United States Championship that they were trying to do everything in their power to light a fire underneath the ass of the title and get it back into prominence. Now they're doing the same thing with the IC title, and thank God, because, you know, with Gunther being the champion, he is one of those dudes in the future I could see being WWE champion. Granted, I don't know how old he is. If memory serves me correct, I think he's in his early 30s. Uh, I know he's been on the British independent scene forever. But let's use this as a rocket ship to get Gunther to that next level. Well, I mean, he's he's over a decade younger, I think, than AJ, or at least a decade younger. So he's still got plenty of time uh, to stick around in the WWE if he wants to. I see 2023 being one hell of a year for Gunther, for sure. Um... I love this. I've been pushing ever since they unified the World Championship, the World and Universal Championship at WrestleMania. I've been telling you, and then, of course, all the talk, and it's been true, of Roman not being around as much as champion and the one and only world champion. You had to push the U.S. and Intercontinental. You had to push the mid-card titles to be... Uh, really important because they're going to be headlining shows and they're going to be headlining house shows. How are you going to do this if the title, if no one cares about the belts? Wait, we can say belts now. How about that? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but that really wasn't getting done the way I was expecting it to. I was expecting, I was like, they have to because the world title is not really going to be in the picture a whole lot. They have to elevate these these championships and they really didn't until again very recently now that vince is gone they started with the u.s championship fantastic package where they 
claimed the history of the WCW slash NWA US Championship, which is great. Um, and they move forward into some good matches on Raw. Now they're doing the same for the IC belt on SmackDown, and I couldn't be happier. And they had a fantastic main event um, here on SmackDown. So uh, I'm all about this. I'm excited to see the future. These belts could start main eventing pay-per-views that Roman and the world title isn't on. Yeah, you know, who would have thought that all it would have taken to bring these titles back to prominence and have people earning to see them more often in the mainstream eye was just a uh, decently put-together promo package with some images from the past and some stock footage. Right. Uh, Use that... uh couple of million you spent for the uh, WCW NWA library uh, to good use. Um, Because Lord knows, and we're getting to the card here real soon, I went through Peacock and had a real hard time finding stuff. There's not as much old footage on there as you think there is. That's Peacock in general. That app is fucking trash. I can't wait for it well, to tank. And I remember there was so much stuff on, you know, we'll get to it when we get to it. That's going to be part of the card. <laughs> but yes, it, it's, the app is trash, at least for what we need it for wrestling. But that's that's a different story. Let's stick on the Intercontinental Championship here. Um, obviously, it's got a history going back to the 70s when... Pat Patterson won it in Rio de Janeiro in a tournament, supposedly. Right? Who could forget? Um, and it's it's had a great history since. It's always been sort of the uh, show-stealing match. Obviously, the most, probably the best ever intercontinental title match being uh, Steamboat and Macho Man Randy Savage at WrestleMania III, um, a match everyone still talks about to this day. Um, and I'm excited. I'm excited yes. to see what they do with this title in the future, with both this and the U.S. title. Some may say it's Sean versus Razor at WrestleMania. Well, sure, oh. sure, unifying the belts there. Absolutely, nice ladder match. Uh, all right, we will move on to what is next, and what is next is the return for episode two of the card. We're going to get into that here right now. Hello and welcome to The Card here on Bomb Media Productions. I'm here with Tony and we are here to talk about some of our favorite matches. We each came up with a list of five plus one honorary mention. So it's really our top 12 matches. Or I wouldn't say our top 12 matches, but 12 matches that we really wanted to talk about on this show. And I'm here joined as always by Tony. How you doing, buddy? Good, man. You know, one thing I'd like to say about this list before we get started is I'd like for the people at home to keep in mind, some of the matches we talk about may not necessarily be because of the in-ring action, but because of the story leading up to it or the emotions that it makes you feel. 
for the love of God, I was almost a smartass and put Pat Patterson's match in Rio de Janeiro as my honorary <laughs> mention. I also, I also almost put Matt Cardona versus Nick Gage from GCW Homecoming 2021 as my honorable mention because of the storyline in of itself. And plus, we know I'm a degenerate and I love blood. <laughs> well, you know, the first one that we're talking about certainly you could say is the forefather of the kind of matches that you love. Uh, my honorary mention here, my number one, and by the way, let me get this out of the way first before we start talking about the matches. Um, this card is going to be slid up into part one and part two. So we're going to talk about my and Tony's honorary matches, and then we're going to go through our number five and our number four. And then uh, we'll have that, that. This is today if you're watching the clipped out version on Tuesday. And then on Thursday, uh, part two will drop that'll have the remainder of our matches uh, here at the card. All right. So my first uh, honorary mention or my only my honorary mention here before we get into my top five is the uh, unsanctioned alley fight between Pat Patterson and Sergeant Slaughter from the Worldwide Wrestling Federation at Madison Square Garden on April 6, 1981. This match is kind of, as I said, the forefather of hardcore wrestling as we know it today. There had been some, there was like, you know, Jerry Lawler was doing concession stand matches and things like that. There had been some hardcore matches before this, but this is the one where you really started to get more of a modern style of it that leads into your Nick Gages and your Moxley's and some of the stuff they do. I, I would actually say more of a Moxley style. Um, you've seen this match, correct? What do you, what do you think of yes. this match? Let's, let's start with what you think. You know, I wish like at times I'd be able to like set myself back into the mindset of somebody who's watching these matches live just to think about, Oh my God. Like first off early eighties, kayfabe was still a thing, brother. I, we, there were oh, yeah. no two ways about it. So you're watching these guys literally thinking that they are trying to kill each other. Yeah. The amount of blood, I, I correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think there was really anything as bloody or violent at that time. I know you were talking about how this laid the groundwork mm -hmm. for what we see today in deathmatch and extreme wrestling. But, yeah, it was, and they actually put a story together within that match that made sense for what that match was. It was death-defying, it was awe-inspiring, and it was a good story all around. Honestly, like I was telling Bobby, this is one of the matches that almost made the... It, I mean, it main-evented the Garden for the yeah. Federation in 81. It main-evented the Garden. There's not really any higher praise than you could say than that. Um, that's how hot the feud was and how hot the match was. And, yeah, as you can see there... Uh, bloody they both got blood on this but especially slaughter he really had it you can see there's there's a picture coming up in this cycle here of pat patterson coming off the top and he's got it's black and white but you can see his his knees are covered in pat patterson or in uh, sergeant slaughter's blood uh, from kneeing him in the face so it's it's a brutal match you can see there's a belt and a strap that takes place here there's they go out side of the ring and go all around um if you've never seen it good luck finding it on peacock because it's not there even in their 
and this is one of their classic matches ever, finding anything before, anything even WWF before 1986 is really tough. Um, other than the couple of WrestleManias before then. Peacock is fucking trash. Well, it, it, they just haven't uploaded it to Peacock. Because I know a lot of this stuff was on the network. They do have... Um, I think it's just called All-Star Wrestling or something along those lines. And it's literally a lot of your Madison Square Garden cards from the late 70s and early 80s. But even this was in 81, and for whatever reason, this one's not on there yet. Which is absolutely ridiculous. But... You can find it. The entire match is on YouTube. So go go to YouTube. Uh, look up Pat Patterson, Sergeant Slaughter, Alley Fight. It'll be there. And it, just, just try to watch that one. All right. Uh, Tony? Uh, we'll, we'll, let me fix that real quick. But, Tony, what is your uh, honorary card? Or honor, honorary mention. Excuse me. Honorary card. Honorary mention. My honorary mention is Sting versus the Black Scorpion with special guest referee Dick the Bruiser in a steel cage NWA championship versus mask match from Starcade 1990. Yeah, this is... Look, we both have matches on this list. Yours is the honorary mention. Mine's coming up a little bit later on where they're more infamous than good. But they're just so weird and crazy that you kind of got to watch. And uh, this is yours here. Um, why don't you tell the people the story leading into this match and why why it's so out there and kind of this weird little match. All right. Well, basically the story was at the time Sting, and we're talking primetime surfer Sting with the rat tail. Um uh, <clears throat> He was in Fuego in WCW. He was the NWA heavyweight champion. And uh, all of a sudden, he starts getting these mysterious messages from somebody as the Black Scorpion. Uh, every week, there's different hints. Somebody from Sting's past. Somebody who teamed with Sting. Uh, then it, every week, he's facing a new Black Scorpion. Somebody that is smaller. Somebody that's bigger. Somebody that's wearing like a weird singlet top thing. None of these turn out to be the actual Black Scorpion because in the beginning of this match, you have four different Black Scorpions walking down the ramp and then a giant UFO cube thing drops yeah. down and unveils the actual Black Scorpion within it. Uh, this goes into a pretty decent, for what it was, steel cage match. Uh, kudos to the cinematography, especially the cameraman. You can see right there. No yeah. You can see That's his knee pads right there. The cage. Yep, sit up in the corner. Uh, there were a few times where a performer in this match took a bump into that corner over there, and I thought the cameraman was going over. Uh, so match regresses. Sting tries to pull off a mask from the Black Scorpion. Uh, holy shit, he's wearing another mask. That somehow he's <laughs> this bleeding. one's white. That's got a big that red stain on. God- yeah, yeah. That should have been a hint. Because we know who's going to get color no matter what, but- even under a mask. But to that point, though, kudos to, spoiler alert, if you aren't watching the pictures, the Black Scorpion was Ric Flair. 
And kudos to him because throughout that match, you couldn't tell it was Ric Flair all but one time where he did the drop. He completely changed up the way he walked. He changed up his moveset. Everything was completely different. Um, what was kind of the dead giveaway, though, Sting wins. And before he can unmask the final mask from the Black Scorpion, in runs the Four Horsemen. It was, uh, at the time, Arn Anderson, mm-hmm. Barry Windham, and the other member is escaping me right now, but also all the other Black Scorpions. Uh, then the Rock and Roll Express come in. They can't get in the cage because the Four Horsemen are blocking them from helping Sting. Excuse me. An outcome of all people, the Steiner brothers with a set of bolt yep. cutters doing the most awkward cutting of a chain that I've ever seen in a still cage match to get in there and really end it and, you know, send everybody home happy. Which, keep in mind, impressive enough because the Steiner brothers were in a match prior to this one where they won a world tag team match defeating the one and only Great Muda and Mr. Saito with the referee being none other than the legendary New Japan referee Red Shoes. Uh, this whole card is just a fucking fever dream. Yeah. So I suggest. Uh, well, we'll talk. I might talk about another fever dream card uh, for an earlier Starcade in a little bit. But this match, and I'd seen it a long time ago. I went back and watched it after you sent me your list here. And I, I uh, updated myself on the story leading into it. Just absolutely crazy, and I and the behind the scenes of it, because this is during Jim Hurd's WCW, and if you don't know anything about Jim Hurd when he ran WCW, he was a pizza guy, all right, and he was he was just like a little pizza entrepreneur that Turner, who hated WCW, not Turner, but uh, Turner Broadcast, the the executives at Turner, uh, hated WCW, hated that Ted Turner. Loved it and bought it. Um, But because Ted Turner owned the company and wanted it and loved wrestling and wanted it on his network, there wasn't a whole lot these executives could do. They did everything they could to destroy it. And they put this guy, Jim Hurd, in charge, who knew nothing about wrestling. And really kind of did some terrible things in this early WCW, 90-91. But until he was finally fired... And Ole Anderson had the book at the time. And, of course, Ole liked a very different type of wrestling. And also, uh, Ric Flair and Jim Hurd hated each other. So, there's all kinds of politics and weird stuff going on during this time. Uh, But Hurd liked a more ridiculous, crazy... You could say WWF style of wrestling, but even more ridiculous and cartoonish with things like the Ding Dongs. Yeah, the Black Scorpion's definitely weird with the Max Moon. <laughs> I will give him that. So, you've got Jim Hurd on Ole Anderson's ass to try and come up with more crazy stuff. So, literally, he changes up a card the night of and just writes down. Sting versus Black Scorpion, having no idea who Black Scorpion is going to be or how they're going to do this, and literally just threw it, literally just wrote it down in pen, 
and gave that to Hurd, and Hurd apparently said to Oli, now you're getting it. And Oli's like, what the... F-? That was a joke. <laughs> Pretty much. So now they've got this whole Black Scorpion character they got to come up with. So, and they do a decent little job of creating, you know, what J.J. Abrams in the movie world will call a mystery box. Like, who is this guy? They tease him. You've got Ole Anderson doing a an early version of the Shockmaster voice for the Black Scorpion. And, you know, they would do these weird vignettes and he'd drop hints. And all the hints seemed to really lead towards Jim Helwig, Sting's former tag team partner in California and in uh, Memphis, I believe. But he was the ultimate warrior and was the WWF champion at the time. So that didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. But that was kind of what they were almost teasing. But you're right. There would be different people that would come in and have different matches with Sting. And it would always be, oh, that's not the real Black Scorpion. And at house shows, it would always be just a different random wrestler from the back. They would have dress up as the Black Scorpion that, that night and go out and have a match with Sting. But they never actually had, from what I understand, Oli never had a clear idea of where they were going. They were making it up as they went. Never knew who it was going to be. And finally, you there was one night where they actually had a magician play the Black Scorpion and do a bunch of magic tricks. They take a a plant from the crowd and they, you know, turn his head all the way around 360 and they turn him into a tiger and, you know, do maybe some of the worst supernatural wrestling uh, segments. Um, that all led to this match here at Starcade where, the like you said, the weird UFO thing drops um, and then opens up and then there's the real Black Scorpion. You've got Dick the Bruiser out there in his pajamas. Uh, a special referee. There was a Polly Dangerously, even Paul Heyman, who was on commentary with this match with good old JR himself, which, it, my God. Of, of maybe any team. of the matches, by even, the way, it, any of the matches on this list, Best. this is the best commentated one for sure. JR and Paul Dangerously, absolutely. Yes. But uh, Paul Heyman even makes mention at some point that this match has to end soon because olive oil needs putt pie to come home. Yeah. Um, this match, uh, fucking cliff note version would be, this is yeah. 1990 WCW, Quay definitely going around in the back. And I'm sure a lot of this storyline had to do with some hard drug use and heavy well, whiskey drinking. And, you know, again, Ric Flair and Jim Hurd didn't get along, but... A month after this, Ric Flair would win the NWA kind of becoming WCW World Championship from Sting. And the speculation is that that was because he did hurt this favor of being the Black Scorpion on this night. And it won him some brownie points with Hurd and he became champion again a little bit later on. So there is, but it was just this crazy, weird, one off gimmick that they had no thing and the match itself isn't bad i would say probably the worst of your rick flair sting matches because rick flair couldn't work like rick flair but you know it is it is what it is 
it's not bad. It's an interesting tidbit to go back and watch of wrestling history for sure. The reason why this is an honorable mention for me, though, one of my first wrestling matches I ever saw was this match. My grandfather had the VHS tape. Huge Ric Flair, huge Dusty fan. So, like we said, a lot of this isn't going to be in ring. It's going to be emotional. Right. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right. So we are going to go to our main list here. Number five. My uh, number five pick is a fairly recent one. CM Punk versus John Cena for the WWE Championship at Money in the Bank on July 17th, 2011. This is, of course, right after the uh, Pipe Bomb promo in Vegas a few weeks prior. Uh, CM Punk would go on to win uh, this match. Uh, become WWE champion, and then leave the company. Um, a lot of stuff going on here, but this is this is the match and this leading up to this, the Pipe Bomb promo. This is what got me back into wrestling after I'd stopped watching for many, many years. Such a good match. I don't know if it's the best match between Cena and Punk. I actually think their best match, uh, as, from a pure wrestling perspective, was on a Raw, the uh, sort of infamous pile driver match. But the story surrounding this match and how big it was, it was in Chicago. So obviously you can't get a more raucous crowd than a Chicago punk crowd. Uh, What do you think of this match? What are your memories of it? You know, my memories of this match, much like you, this is coming off the heels of, at the time, potentially one of the greatest promos ever cut in the WWE. Uh, man, and was there anybody hotter at that time? Chicago or not? Was there anybody hotter than CM? No, absolutely not. It was such he such an intriguing on, story. He walked on water yeah. to the fans, and and of course the WWE uh, going into that pipe bomb promo just assumed that 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 would make Punk more of a heel. And if you actually listen to that promo, Punk's trying to stay heel in that and insulting the fans. And there's just, it doesn't matter because what he's saying is what a lot of the fans felt at the time about how tired and just boring the WWE was at that point. And this changed everything and it got me into it. No one knew whether that pipe bomb, at least for a couple hours, no one knew whether or not it was a worker or a shoot. And it blew up the internet, and I saw it the next day. I saw everything going crazy on the on you know the dirt sheet web pages, and so that got me interested in what was going on. And I went back and watched the promo, and then that led to me watching this match. And it's just it's such a good match as far as the drama of it. They tease a little bit of a Bret Hart. Um, screw job at the end with Vince coming out with Laurinaitis to ring the bell when you're when Cena was in the S or when Punk was in the STF but you know Cena stops decks uh, Laurinaitis and tells Vince that's not the way it's going to happen gets back in the ring GTS one two three and there you go Punk is WWE champion and he blows the kiss to Vince on his way out of the building such an incredible moment. One of the most iconic moments in all of WWE history, for sure. 
I mean, that image of Punk jumping the barricade with the belt and blowing the kiss to Vince is one of my top three most iconic images from the last 30 years of wrestling. Um, just because going into that, much like you, I was out of professional wrestling at that time. I had a lot of shit going on. I was trying to get laid. And, you know, social media blows up because of this, and you're fucking confused because you have CM Punk sitting on top of the rampway yeah. wearing a stone-cold shirt. And you have John Cena laid out in the ring that was apparently from a match that CM Punk wasn't in. Oh, shit, I got to go back and watch this. And then it just sucked you right back in. That was the power and the significance Absolutely. of this match, I feel like, for a lot of wrestling fans our age. All right, we'll go back to our list here, and we will go to your number five. Very recent one, just a few weeks ago at uh, Death Before Dishonor. The Briscoes versus FTR for the Ring of Honor Tag Team Championships. A two out of three falls match. Um, this match, I unfortunately, I'm desperate to see, but I just haven't yet. Um, it's escaped me, and I haven't gone back to watch it yet with all the things I've got going on. Uh, so you're going to have to do the big work here of talking about this match and how good it was and why it's on your list. All right, well, let's make one thing clear right out the gate. FTR is the greatest tag team working in professional wrestling today with Dax Harwood potentially being one of the greatest wrestlers in the mm -hmm. world working today. Then you have the Briscoes who arguably are number two on that list. Fuck your young bucks, shove them up your ass. These two teams, when you put them together are magic. These are two old school, hard hitting tag teams very similar style they care about the work rate they care about putting on a excuse me they care about putting on a great show for the fans when they're out in that ring these are two teams they can give a fuck all about anything else it's for the fans it's making sure everybody goes home happy with that said there were so many spots in this match and i don't mean like big spots or we're gonna do 100 super kicks this match paid homage to the greats of professional wrestling. Uh, the Doomsday Device, you had them setting up. You see here for this crucifix off the top rope. Um, so many moments in the match. One sticking out in my head right now of, with the nasty table bump to the outside. Uh, one of the Briscoes did to Cash Wheeler. I can't say enough good things. I'm trying to be very vague about this match because... This is one of those matches where I really, Bobby, I want I you to go to. back and I've been try wanting and find to. time to see it with, without me spoiling anything for you just because, dude, this is a match that's going to change your perception of not only what Ring of Honor is, because there's a lot of the going into Death Before Dishonor in particular, there was a lot of the hardcore Ring of Honor fans from the Kevin Steen, El Generico, Nigel Wolf days that were railing against Ring of Honor because they thought there was no way that they could have the action Ring of Honor was known for being underneath the Tony Khan AEW banner. And this match in particular, granted, the three-way or the three-man tag title match before that was great. A lot of the matches on this card are great. Unfortunately, the opening match between Claudio Castagnoli and Jonathan Gresham was kind of a stinker, but... I, that that's my own opinion on that. I'll keep to myself. I just feel like this match made up for any kind of 
flaw you could see with Ring of Honor not being its own independent company anymore going forward. And the magic in this match was just far above and beyond anything you could have expected, even though you expected coming out of FTR. This is also one of those matches that put brisk the Briscoes, for me, in the main driver's seat. If you recall before this, they were trying to get Tony Khan to sign them to any kind of contract. After this match, the Briscoes have their Ring of Honor, the Ring of Honor contract. Uh, I think we're going to be seeing them a lot more than just on Ring of Honor television, though. Granted, whenever that does get announced, and uh, this match alone, I believe, put FTR in the number one slot to be the contenders for the AEW Tag Team Championship. Which inevitably, it's just going to be FTR holding every tag team title in the world. Uh, yeah, it just it will get you very excited for tag team wrestling. Yeah, I, I I don't have an excuse for why I haven't come back and watched it. I really need to do that. Uh, and uh, honestly, this is one of the only matches on this list that has nothing to do with storyline or how it made me feel emotionally. Uh, the match itself right. does something to you that is just unbelievable. All right, we'll get to our number fours. My number four is the Midnight Express versus the Road Warriors in a Skywalkers match, otherwise known as a scaffold match from Starcade 86. This match is my Black Scorpion match. This is the one. These scaffold matches weren't great, but they are crazy to watch. Um, again, they're up, they're up really high. They just got this little platform to kind of try and beat each other up on. There's some swinging around, but it's really high up. It's really scary. It's nerve wracking to watch these things. Um, and if you're a Jim Cornette hater, you might enjoy this particular match as well. Um, for certain reasons, it's not technically a great match or really a match at all. But it's something you need to go back and see. Tony is a huge Road Warriors fan. Uh, I love the Midnight Express and Rock and Roll Express. And they would, in 87, they would have their own scaffold match. The scaffold in that match was put together a lot better than this one was. This one was falling apart on them. And and I, I would have been freaking out up there. Um, you can see them underneath the scaffold. And the... And the way you win a scaffold match is literally to throw them off of it. You have to throw the other team off the match to off the scaffold to win the match. Um, and you see here they'd be underneath it. There's kind of a, a ladder bars underneath to hold on to. Um, it was very rickety and moving around and ooh, some scary stuff there. Um, the Road Warriors would win this match. You can see there uh, Stan Lane, uh, or no, no, excuse me, that was Dennis Condry. At this point, it was still Dennis Condry and uh, Beautiful Bobby. Uh, the year later, it would be Stan Lane. But uh, for the other scaffold match, Dennis Condry would leave the NWA, would leave Crockett. But it's just a spectacle you got to see. And again, I mentioned after the match, uh, they chase Cornette up on top of the uh, scaffold, who then kind of makes his way around to the underneath. And 
then he falls off and he's supposed to be caught by Big Bubba, the future Big Boss Man, Ray Trailer. And he doesn't quite catch him. And Cornette lands and he legitimately screws up his knee pretty bad. Uh, let me see. I got pictures and I've got... I don't know why it's not coming to it. It hasn't at all yet. But... Uh, We'll just say Big Bubba no, doesn't exactly not quite. do his job. But you can see there's there's a picture of the aftermath. There's a picture of Cornette hanging from it. I've got a gif of him actually falling, if it'll come up here. And for some reason it's not, unfortunately. Um, but it's, it's such a... Yeah, it, just go back and watch this match. It's not terribly long. Obviously, there's not a whole lot they can do on top of this scaffold other than throw punches and kind of take... Oh, there's the GIF. There it is. You'll see uh, Cornette fall. Bubba's supposed to catch him. He doesn't. And he completely blows up his uh, right knee. Absolutely terrible. I imagine... I imagine there was a, You motherfucker! Throwing him there's a, another picture that's not coming. There it is right there. That apparently is a picture of a picture. But you can see that's after the match. You can see Bubba in his bowler hat there. Uh, but there's Cornette getting that knee looked at. And you can see, you can, you can just see how he's in the middle of a fucking tirade right oh, yeah. there of a rant. But, um, you know, the funny thing is, the first time this pulled up, I, for some reason, thought it was a member of Kiss wearing a really tiny hat. <laughs> so. Uh, but, yeah, this is this is something to go back and see just for the spectacle of it. Not for the uh, how good the match is by any means, but this was this was uh, they called this the night of the Skywalkers, this Starcade. So this was it wasn't the last match, but it was kind of your main event. Um, all right, we will move on to the to uh, Tony's number four. And Tony, what is your number four? My number four is Cody versus Dustin from Devil or Nothing 2019. This was the first AEW pay-per-view under the AEW banner. Uh, man, this is definitely an emotionally driven story for me. Coming into it, first off, I didn't know Dustin, or as we knew him as Gold Dust, wasn't with WWE anymore. So when they started rolling out the promos for this and leading up to it, it was a lot of Cody asking Dustin to give him a match. And anybody who's an old-school WWE fan, back 2015's longer than that, Cody wanted to do a match with Dustin for whatever reason. Things wouldn't permit that. Uh, Dustin eventually gives in to Cody's wishes and gives him a match at Double or Nothing. The basis of it is, is Cody feels like he was never good enough to fill the boots of Dustin. Dustin feels like Cody's a spoiled brat who is always favored by Dusty. So the storyline right there of who's Dusty's favorite child. Uh, at the time, Cody is deep within the throes of being Cody Rhodes the prick. Uh, I believe this was the time where he was teasing a presidential campaign run with a teddy bear as his vice president uh 
And then you have Dustin just, he wants to be left alone. He wants a simple life. Just, I got to beat my brother's ass. I got to beat sense into him. This match starts with a moment. I'm not going to lie. I'm a man. I started crying in the beginning of this match because a Dusty chant starts. And they had their moment where they look up. They thank Dusty for putting them in the position they're in. And then the bell rings, and this is everything you expect of an AEW match because everybody gets color. There's a lot of interesting spots in it. Uh, There's a point where Dustin pulls down Cody's pants and starts spanking him with a work belt, uh, if you're into that kind of thing. Um, But the critical moment comes when Cody gets the one, two, three and it's emotional. And there's this, this image of Dustin in the center of the ring, wearing the crimson mask. Like he's bleeding like a stuffed pig crying, takes his boots off, puts them in the center of the ring. Anybody who's a wrestling fan knows that is the symbol of a professional wrestler hanging it up. And that's when Cody tells him, no, nah, no, nah, not like this. You're not fucking, you're not done. Not like this. Uh, yeah, beautiful match, beautiful storytelling. If you're a fan of Dusty or the Reynolds family, this is a, this is an emotional tear. Yeah, obviously match. you got two great hands in the ring. It's going to be a good match, but it's the story around it that makes it so much better and so emotional. And this is the match that really, you know, obviously this is AEW's first show proper and this is the match on that card that made everyone go oh AEW could be could be good this can be a real thing here and this may have been the match that got them the tv deal for turner so yeah and you infamously enough a lot of things that get overlooked now because of how good this match was this was also the match where Cody infamously comes out in the Triple H throne yeah. and destroys it with a sledgehammer prior to the match. And you honestly, because of how good this match is, nobody barely brings up that People throne. bring it up, but they don't remember what it was before. This match or that moment yeah. is always separated. But yeah. Um. Which, ironically enough, Cody recently just shared a picture of it on Twitter he got it rebuilt and put in the bar inside of his <laughs> yeah. house. Yeah, I heard he done it. I didn't see the picture, though. All right. That was our number four. And that'll be the end of part one of the card. Part two will drop on Thursday. And that'll go through the rest three, two, and one of mine and Tony's top picks here. If you're watching on the Buckle Bomb Show proper video that drops on Sunday, just keep watching we are going to continue on. All right. We'll see you on Thursday for the rest of the rest of the card. All right. Here we are for part two of the card. Mine and Tony's top 12, really, if we include the honorable mentions. Uh, matches, not necessarily our fit, best matches, but matches that we really wanted to talk about here today. And we are up to our number three. Uh, my number three is a match from Nitro in 1998, September of 1998, Billy Kidman versus Juventud Guerrera for the Cruiserweight Championship. This was one heck of a TV match, one of those classic Cruiserweight matches, and and these two have had matches a million times just on Nitro. But this was when, for me, Kidman was becoming peak Kidman. 
with the uh, tank top and the jorts that he would wear all the time. And at this point, he didn't even have his uh, ring music yet. That was low-key one of my favorite ring entrance music themes of all time. Um, He didn't even have that yet because he had just left the flock. The flock had just been broken up, Raven's flock. Um, And he was just breaking away from that. He was kind of the leader of what was being broken away. And he's obviously getting a little bit of a push here. But him and Juventud always had great chemistry. Juventud was cruiserweight champion coming into this. And they just had this fantastic match on Nitro that uh, blew the roof off the place. You can see how, uh, how over Kidman is. Um, the finish of the match is Juventud going for his 450 splash. He misses, um, which sets Kidman up, and then Kidman goes up to the top rope for his uh, uh, shooting star. And the, everyone in the building just gets on their feet because they know it's coming. And he hits that shooting star splash perfectly on the Juventud. Gets the three. He's the new Cruiserweight champion. And he doesn't even have his own ring music yet. Um, Perry Saturn comes out, who had also just left the flock and gives him a stand, gives him an ovation. The crowd's going nuts. Um, you've seen this match. You said pretty recently, actually. What do you think of this match? Yeah. You know, in my personal opinion, I believe this is the match that made WWE open its eyes to having potentially smaller guys on their program on a weekly basis. Um, it wasn't too long after this match that you saw the rise of groups like Kai and Ty and uh, Crash Holly with his absolutely ridiculous hardcore championship ring. Uh, I, I feel like this match was the standard bearer for what we know as cruiserweight wrestling today. And even though prior to this, you had guys like Rey Mysterio doing it, this match right here showed that there was a want to see guys who weren't exactly in Vince McMahon's big sweaty man bear. Yeah, and, and WWF slash WWE, even to this day, still has never fully leaned to. And today's a little bit different. You've got, you know, cruiserweights are world champion holders now a lot of the times, and that's perfectly acceptable and fine. Uh, and this is at a time when heavyweights and light heavyweights slash cruiserweights, there was still a distinction between them. Uh, Chris Jericho was in this cruiserweight division um, and would never have been thought of as a world title uh, holder at that point in time. But, th- yeah, this, I mean, certainly at this point, that cruiserweight title had already re- gotten quite a bit of play in the undercard of Nitro for a couple of years. Um, you know, Rey Mysterio has had it. Uh, Eddie Guerrero had had it. I think Jericho by this point had had, had it. So, and now here we are with Juventude, mm-hmm. and you know, giving it on to Kidman, and just a, a fantastic match. Like you said. There was another match I was going to put into this place. Um, and it was a Rey Mysterio Jr. versus Kidman match that would take place after this for the WCW title that would go to a 15-minute draw. Uh, that was absolutely fantastic. Probably, and I, I mentioned this to you before we started recording, probably the match that got me as a wrestling fan. Before that, I enjoyed the show uh 
Um, I had only started watching wrestling early in 98, very late in 97. This was the first one that made me go, oh, no, I actually like the wrestling as much as I, if not more than I like the stories behind it and the false finishes, that match. But this this is an even better match. And, and over time, this is the one that's kind of stuck out to me a little bit more. This one, I was also thinking Rey Mysterio versus Eddie Guerrero at Halloween Havoc. Absolute banger of a match that everyone remembers. Just got mentioned on uh, WWE TV recently with... The uh, with Ray Ripley's return at that uh, anniversary for Ray Mysterio when the his uh, costume for that match uh, was in the package was gifted to him. But uh, this this match is probably a little more low key. But if you haven't seen it, you need to go back and watch it. Uh, September fourteenth, nineteen ninety eight, Nitro. Go go on Peacock. Look up this match. It's absolutely fantastic. You know, and another thing real quick, just to tell you how significant uh, it is now that we have cruiserweights posing as, or that had the potential to become world champions. Um, the cruiserweight division is classified anything 205 pounds and lower. AJ Styles walks around at 204 pounds. AJ would technically be considered a cruiserweight. But it's nowadays absolutely absurd to envision AJ Styles not in that world championship, U.S. championship picture. Yeah, yeah it's crazy to think about. I think because they would talk about Jericho. I know there is a whole run with Jericho as a heel. And he had to get under. He He was probably over the weight limit for the cruiserweight division. But he would do some heel things to act like he actually i think the limit was 205 pounds if i'm not mistaken something like that all right we will go to your yep. number three match which is absolutely a banger in a hell in a cell match at wrestlemania 28 with Shawn michaels as a special guest referee the undertaker versus triple h end of an era uh why is this your number three because when you really think about it, this match was the end of an era. Uh, you had Triple H getting ready to shave his head and transition into more of a uh, backstage role. Uh, moving into more of an Undertaker role at that, too, because the only time around this point where you'd see Triple H as a performer would be around WrestleMania time on the road to WrestleMania, trying to figure out who Triple H is going to be competing against that year at WrestleMania. Um, this is when The Undertaker was getting ready to become more of a part-timer, once-a-year kind of figure, uh, especially knowing that two years later you're going to be heading into the streak finally being broken at WrestleMania 30. Uh, Shawn Michaels, at this point, had already stepped away from full-time in-ring competition. I actually believe that he stepped away altogether. Um, this was the last stand of the toxic backstage locker room uh, things that have been noted recently in interviews uh, on top of that too you had the storyline going into this is absolutely where the undertaker is going to have the streak be lost Shawn michaels dx partner with triple h uh, but then the seeds of dissent started being planted where triple h couldn't really trust Shawn michaels going into this 
Um, this is also the first time in modern history of WWE where The Undertaker didn't really have no grand entrance into WrestleMania. Uh, it was very just straightforward, him coming out with the hood on. Uh, the Hell in a Cell itself even had theme music for WrestleMania. It was Metallica, if I remember correctly. Uh, a lot of bizarre coincidence. The great brawling outside of the ring up next to the steel cage. Sean being hesitant to get in the middle of it. Uh, even at times where The Undertaker would grab a hold of Sean and shove him out. Instead of getting involved, Sean would walk away and just kind of, you know, take a breather and come back. And that's when the hardware gets into play. You know, the infamous uh, steel steel steps with the sledgehammer spot, uh, the Hell's Gate, as you're showing now, on top of the stairs. Just this match, to me, embodied everything that was the Attitude Era, going to the wayside and making room for moments to take place from the ruthless aggression era and the era that we now have. Yeah. I I got to see this match pretty recently uh, about six or eight weeks ago. I had it randomly playing as I was setting up, I think for one of our live streams and I ended up stopping what I was doing and ended up just watching the match because it's just so good. It just drew me in and Shawn Michaels, who at this point had been retired for two years after his match with uh, Taker at 26, he was fantastic as the referee role, his facials, his uh, his uh, his storytelling here in this match, and just the destruction that these two guys are doing to each other, and his reactions to it, and how happy he was. And then, of course, on the stage afterwards, which was supposedly a, a completely improvised moment involved three of them arm in arm on the stage afterwards, which is absolutely fantastic and tear-inducing as well. Yeah, we go into that conversation of iconic images from professional wrestling in the last 30 years. That image of them on top of the ramp, three of them supporting each other up, man, it just... If watching that match and how it ends doesn't do something for you in here, you have no fucking heart, and I don't know what to tell you. All right. We will move on to our number twos. My number two is AJ Lee versus Caitlin for the Divas Championship at Payback uh, 2013, June of 2013. This match is long before any women's revolution or evolution. This is even before the NXT was having their fantastic women's match. I think you had Charlotte and Natalia at the first takeover. Wouldn't be for another year or 11 months yet. Um, but this, I think this match really is what started the ball rolling on getting to some of those women's matches that would actually have time on shows and they would be able to actually tell a really good story. Uh, this is very important, I think, to the evolution of women's wrestling, especially in WWE to what it is today. Before this, it was just comedy spots uh, for your piss break match uh, between what they thought were the good matches on the card. And this was... Definitely a transition away from that. What do you think of this match? 
You know, I think you're absolutely right. You hit the nail right on the head there. Uh, this was the start of what we would later know as the women's evolution in professional wrestling. Um, the storyline, I will admit, has escaped me to an extent. Uh, watching so much wrestling over this last week to kind of prepare for this. But from what I do recall, this was like AJ Lee's like fanfare push, wasn't well, it? Well, she was the big heel. This was at a time when uh, AJ was still with Dolph Ziggler and Big Dolph E and Langston. Yeah. Big E Langston. And Dolph at this point was kind of getting that big. He was world champion now, and he'd kind of been turned baby face by the fans and he was working Alberta the Real. In fact, it's later on this card when he had that match against uh, Alberto Del Rio where he got the concussion and would be out for a while. And that kind of screwed up, you know, ended his run, unfortunately, a little early. But uh, leading into this match, the story, I mean, it was still, they had a little ways to go. It was still a WWE diva storyline of, you know, Caitlin was in the ring and she'd be getting these secret admirer messages from someone. And she went out to the ring and she's like, okay, who's my secret admirer? They said they'd meet me here tonight. And out comes Biggie Langston, right? And he's got flowers and he comes out to the ring and he grabs her and she looks really into it. And he leans her down and goes in to kiss her and then just drops her. And AJ Lee's music plays and, you know, so it was that emotional kind of BS women's story. You know, it still had the time, but the emotion was there. There was a story at all, which was really good. And it did play into the match really well. And um, AJ Lee would go over Caitlyn here. Again, they told a great story within the match that complemented the story they were telling around it. And that Caitlyn really really was emotionally compromised here and just wanted to really beat up AJ Lee to the point where she had AJ Lee beat and was like, nope, I'm not done with her. And that ended up coming back to cost her the match where AJ Lee would get her uh, Black Widow submission move on her and AJ Lee or Caitlin would have to tap out. Uh, the WWE fans weren't exactly caught up on women's wrestling at the time either yet. Caitlyn was the clear baby face in this, and she's crying and emotional after the match, and they're just booing the hell out of her. They're like, oh, female emotions, boo. <laughs> Which, not exactly the best look for the WWE Universe today, but, you know, they had some, you know, they, they had built the, w, the WWE Divas division to be this thing to be laughed at and mocked up to this point anyway. So it was going to take some time to, I think, catch the audience up. And they have done that. But this was the first step. And uh, it was it's such a good match. And a thing you really need to go back and watch on Peacock. All right, that'll lead us into your number two. Cody versus Nick Aldis for the NWA Championship at All In. The precursor to... Uh, AEW promotion. This was an independent card. There was no actual... Ring of Honor kind of co-promoted it, uh, mostly on the production side. 
with their uh, equipment and their staff. But otherwise, this was just put. This was a show put on in an arena and a sellout at that by Cody Rhodes and the Young Bucks. And this was your basically your main event: Cody versus Aldis for the NWA title. Uh, why is this your number two? All right, well, I'm going to correct you. This was definitely not the main event. This was actually the middle of the card. Um, let me set the stage for you. People were wondering after the success of Supercard of Honor selling out Madison Square Garden. Actually, I think it was a little bit before that. So people were asking if New Japan could sell out 10,000 seats. I remember it was very specifically a... Uh... A tweet by Meltzer saying there's no way an independent show could sell this many seats or whatever. Yes. And Cody said, I'll take that bet. And I think it was a year or something later they had this the, pay-per-view. Yeah. Um, the tickets for this event, when they were released, sold out in 37 minutes. Just think about the magnitude of an independent, not even a real promotion, just names coming from the Bullet Club putting something together to sell something out in 37 minutes. That was over 10,000 seats. So at that point, pie in your face, Dave Meltzer. Um, the backstory going into this was Cody was the ROH champion, uh, but he didn't have the belt. Instead, he wore the ring, which is the pontificus for MJF's ring that he has now. Um, Nick Aldis was doing his 20 matches in 20 countries in 20 days. Uh, at the time being the NWA champion, he was trying to bring that title back Which to he prominence. Did, I would think. Uh, and this match was a big part yes. of it. And for me, this the beginning of this storyline was the first time that I saw Nick Aldis since he was Magnus back in TNA. Uh, the leader of a little group called the British Invasion. Uh, my how times has changed. Um, Nick Aldis coming into this actually dwarfing Cody in size, which was incredible. Again, if this is your first time seeing Nick Aldis in quite some time. Um, the beginning of the match, you'd be remiss not to talk about the two sides that come out with each man. Uh, coming out with Cody, part of the Nightmare family, was... Tommy Dreamer, obviously inspired by Dusty so much. Diamond Dallas Page. Glacier. If you don't remember Glacier, he had the Sub-Zero gimmick in WCW. And, of course, his father-in-law and his brother-in-law. And the one member of this that got the biggest pop of the night out of everything that had happened, Pharaoh. Right. Uh, coming out with Nick... Coming out with Nick Aldis was a who's who of NWA champion holders. You had Double J, Jeff Jarrett. You had Tim Storm. Uh, gosh, right now I'm blanking on all the other names, but I had to write them down. Uh, just so many impactful people with history in the mm -hmm. NWA championship. Now, full, full disclosure, even though this match was really good, um, the reason this match had so much vested interest into me is probably top three favorite wrestlers of my grandfathers who I grew up watching ergo because of that was Dusty Rhodes. Uh, there is so much history with the Rhodes name in the NWA championship that it would only make sense for Cody to want to fulfill his father's legacy by finally becoming the NWA champion. 
And this match was so incredible and just not only the action that happened in the ring and how simplistic everything was, but paying homage to NWA championship matches that came prior to that and paying homage to professional wrestlers that each individual wrestler looked up to. There was a spot in the match where Nick Aldis did that famous British bulldog running power slam to Cody on the outside. You had Cody taking moves from Randy Orton and uh, Ted, Ted Jr. Uh, throughout the match. There are little nuanced things like that that happen. And, of course, you can't have an NWA match, championship match without paying homage to Ric Flair, Cody getting some real good color on the outside, um, and then everything to the finish. The finish wasn't anything real fancy. Nick Aldis tried a sunset flip to which Cody countered by just sitting down on top of him, getting the one, two, three. Uh, very emotional, as you see right here, end of the match, Cody actually receiving the NWA championship. Earl Hebner. Yeah. Earl goddamn Hebner refereed this match. And when he handed that belt to Cody and he flipped it for him to make sure that Cody knew he was going to be holding that title the right way for his first time holding it, dude, just this match just hit you in the feels and was good for all Absolutely. the right reasons. This, this match was the a bit of a precursor to the Cody Dustin match that we talked about earlier. Earl Hebner refereed that match as well. But yeah, this was this was the first time I knew Billy Corgan had bought a an NWA or the NWA and was kind of running it. But I didn't I wasn't even aware that the NWA title, which is ridiculous because they were using that belt in TNA, the early NWA TNA days, but I didn't realize that they were still using the the Harley Race 10 pounds of old belt. Until I saw that image of Cody from this pay-per-view of Cody crying and holding on to it, a belt that his father had won, which was made me go, oh, I got to go watch that match and see what happened there. And, you know, for, for those that to go a little bit further into that, the whole NWA slash WCW title had a little bit of a complicated history. The, you know, it kind of, the NWO title kind of became the WCW International title, which was then uh, unified with the WCW title once the NWA kind of broke away from WCW. So, but that WCW title always claimed the history of the NWA championship. And even further on, the WWE World Heavyweight Championship, the big old belt, would claim the history of that belt. So there's always been a disputed history uh, and disputed claim of the NWA uh, World Heavyweight Championship there. But the, that's what got me was that belt and Cody Rhodes holding that belt. The image of that at the end of this match that I saw, I had to go, oh, I have to, I have to see this. And it was an absolutely fantastic match. Uh Absolutely deserving of your number two spot, for sure. You know, and just to put this in perspective, anybody who was a wrestling fan throughout the 90s, there's two images of the NWA World Heavyweight Championship that everybody seems to recall. Number one being Shane Douglas winning the NWA Championship in ECW and saying that this is a relic of the past, right. bullshit, and throwing the belt in the trash. Then the next time you see it is a few years later 
in WWE of all places, uh, Dan Severn was working for WWE, the UFC, and the NWA yeah. all at the same time. Uh, just recently, I went back and watched the first few UFCs on ESPN+. And Dan Severn actually comes out to the octagon, I believe is either UFC 3 or UFC 4, with the NWA championship. Uh, after that, you don't see it again until Jeff Jarrett's holding it in TNA, and then you had many greats like uh, Samoa Joe, Christopher Daniels, AJ Styles, all holding the NWA championship. But to me, it never really seemed complete again until yes. you saw it with Nick Aldis, and you saw what Billy Corgan was doing. And then once it was in the hands of Cody, because it is Cody on this list, because at the time, WWE owed the Rhodes, owned the Rhodes name. And how fucking petty they were. They wouldn't let Cody use the name Rhodes, but they let Brandy use the name Rhodes. Well, I think, yeah, I think it was the Cody so, Rhodes name in, in its entirety. It's, it's weird and complicated. Yeah. Um, obviously, we talked about Cody versus Dustin, and they build it as Cody versus Dustin, not Cody versus Dustin Rhodes. Though Dustin Rhodes was still using the Rhodes name, but that was also more story reasons. You want the simplicity of just brother versus brother, Cody versus Dustin. But that's that's a whole separate thing. But yeah, but nonetheless, the NWA title. While it rose to prominence with Nick Aldis being the champion and the hell of a job he did with it, something seemed right about that title being back in the hands and, of another. And Rhodes. you talk about the the title sort of disappearing. It was still getting defended, and it was still around in the independence. There was still an NWA per se. It just no one cared at all. And you talked about Dan Severn in that time period. That was when they were doing that. NWA invasion led by Cornette on WWF TV that really ended up going nowhere. It was kind of dumb, but that was that was a that was meant to be a vehicle for Jeff Jarrett, who was the NWA North American champion, I believe at the time, and they were pushing that. That was just to have him have a belt to push as a heel, but it it just didn't really work all that well and was dropped pretty quickly. But yeah, this match, you definitely need to go back and see if you haven't watched it. Um, that will take us to our number one picks for the for the card here. My number one pick that is a match I think you really need to see for the history, speaking of the NWA title, Kerry Von Erich versus Ric Flair for the NWA Championship at Parade of Champions, May 6, 1984. And this match... There's a lot of rumors surrounding Kerry's state going into the match. But it's still a really good match. Kerry and uh, Flair would have a lot of matches. Um, this was uh, Kerry's only run as world champion, though. Uh, he wouldn't hold it for very long. He would lose it again to Flair shortly after this. I believe in a steel cage, if I'm not mistaken. But... This was, of course, not too long after David Flair's untimely passing in Japan. Uh, and this was sort of the memorial show at Texas Stadium. An absolutely humongous crowd for a territory. One of the biggest ever for world class, for Dallas. And this match was the main event. Uh, 
Carrie would go over and win the world title here. Tears running down the, everyone's face, everyone crying because of the emotions of the moment. Uh, what are your What are your thoughts on this match? I know you've seen it. What do you think of Carrie and Flair here? Well, first off, anything Von Eric and Flair is always going to be good. Uh, the emotion behind this match, you know, you have Carrie Von Eric, the Von Eric name, weighing so heavily mm-hmm. in the state of Texas that. To this day, Lacey Von Erich, every time she's wrestled in Texas before she quit wrestling, although not that good, still Von Erich still got massive pops. Um, you just think about the amount of people, like the crowd that you're looking at right now in this image. Back then, that was almost unheard of, being able to fill a stadium of that size. This is pre-WrestleMania, pre-this being in anybody's head of how big you could actually and, go with wrestling. And to be clear, it's not they didn't fill the entire stadium. It was it was Texas Stadium in Dallas or in Fort Worth. They had the ring in one of the end zones and you can see there like how full that is. Yeah. That's the horseshoe right there in one of the end zones. And if you see a shot from the other end, the other end the end of the end zone is fairly empty. But as you get closer to the ring, and even even the upper decks, the nosebleeds of the stadium are packed. It's absolutely, and you can kind of see there. You get further away from the ring to the right, it gets a little empty, but they're jam packed in that stadium, uh, closer to the ring. Absolutely. And, uh, there, you, there you see the ten pounds of gold belt right there that Kerry is holding up and displaying. Uh, just such an incredible match. Again, not the easiest thing to find on the network slash Peacock. Um, the match took place, this is before the days of pay-per-view. Um, this wasn't even closed circuit. This was just... Oh. This was just a stadium show. You go there to see it live. They they obviously recorded it. And they played it on their, uh, on their studio show... I believe May 18th, so a little over a week later or two weeks later. Um, if you go back onto Peacock and you look up World Class Rest, World uh, Class Championship Wrestling, I think if you, I think you have to go to the May 18th '84 show, and they play this match on it. And the tape, by the way, isn't very great. There are some issues with the Peacock version. It's the best version you're probably going to find. But there are issues with it. It's not the greatest quality. There are some skips in it and this and that. Um, but and, and Peacock, the network, will warn you, hey, this, isn't, this is the best copy available. But there are some issues with it. But definitely a match you need to go back and see again. It's a typical Ric Flair match, and that's the finish, by the way. It's a backslide. Uh, Flair would be counted out down for the three count right there. Uh, and, of course, once he gets that three, just the entire stadium explodes. It's such a thing to watch. Go back and watch that match uh, if you've never seen it. And, you know, going into that history being Kerry's only championship reign, just adds credence to how awesome it was seeing the new Von Erichs on Ric Flair's yeah. last match pay-per-view against the Bristol's, yeah. which was another Yeah, it was a thing you awesome and I had match. messaged about before. Like, 
I think I said something to you. It just just the Briscoes versus the Von Erics as a match. Like, it, it, is it nineteen eighty two again? What's going on here? Um, but yeah, so which absolutely was fitting for Ric Flair's last match. And for those of you that don't know, I, I want to go into it just a little bit here. The Von Erics, like we talked, you mentioned briefly about how big they were in Texas. Like, you can't underestimate. You or excuse me, you can't overestimate just how huge the Von Erich family was in Texas, especially Dallas, Texas, in that area and that uh, promotion and territory. They were well, they were bigger than the Beatles. With that said, for- like they were huge, yes. huge, 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 and that cannot be overstated. Just how big they were in that territory, and not to spend a lot of time on it, but if you want to know. Also, the extremely heartbreaking and tragic side of the Von Erich family, I highly suggest Dark Side of the Ring Season 2. They did an amazing piece on... They even had Carrie in it. Uh, Kevin. To discuss everything that Kevin. happened with the Von Erich. Kevin, my bad. Kevin, they had Kevin in it. Uh, it's all the case. It gets me confused. Uh, they have Kevin in it. He goes into great detail, more than he's ever publicly gone into detail about everything that happened. Like Kevin with the being Bonnet the last family. surviving uh, brother of that family. Uh, yeah, absolutely heartbreaking. The, the Dark Side of the Ring and even the WWE uh, documentary Triumph and Tragedy of World Class Championship Wrestling, which is on the Peacock, uh, is also a v- excellent. Ooh, I'm going to check they, that out. They don't shy away from. Uh, a lot of the tragedy of that as well. Obviously, they don't dive as deep as Dark Side of the Ring, but but still, they don't shy away from it either. And and Kevin is also a big part of that documentary as well. Very good documentary. It, it came out. They, that was when they were doing their run. They had the ECW documentary, and then they had the Rise and Fall, and then they had the Rise and Fall WCW. And I think shortly after that, they did the World Class one, and it was really good. And it is on Peacock. All right. That'll take us to the last match we'll talk about today. Tony, your number one match. Speaking of ECW, ECW One Night Stand in 2006, RVD versus John Cena for the WWE Championship. Why is this your number one? All right, so before I get into this, I would like to say this was absolutely a different time in what the culture of our nation was. Um for as one of the reasons why we were shitting on, well, why I was shitting on Peacock so hard. Remember with the WWE Network, you used to be able to type in a match, it would just take you to that match. That feature is not available with Peacock. You also can't just pick a pay-per-view and go to the match in the uh, time yeah. timetable on the bottom. So with that, you have to fast forward to get to the point that you yeah. want to get to within that pay-per-view to watch a match. And this morning, I wanted to refresh myself a little bit. I wanted to watch this match again because I made this list, but I wanted to see if this match was as good as I remember it being. Uh, There were three different cards in the beginning of this that warned you how explicit this pay-per-view is, and for good reason, because of a spot that I completely fucking forgot about in a match that was prior to the John Cena RVD match. Um, there was two different occasions where Edge had Beulah McGillicuddy once simulating oral sex on him and the pin where he literally humped a passed out woman with her legs in the air. Uh, 
different time. Yeah. Um, also, they did the video package for this match, thinking that we were going right into this match, but no, the introduction for RVD is interrupted by none other than Eugene. Uh, for those of us who don't recall, Eugene was the um, mentally challenged nephew of Eric Bischoff to where, granted, this is an ECW crowd. ECW uh, fans yeah. are fucking ruthless. So they are literally booing a mentally challenged man in the center of a ring as he tries to read a poem to the ECW audience in which he loves ECW and the hero in all of this that happened before the match even begins is a cigarette-smoking, beer-swilling, Singapore cane-wielding Sandman who comes into the ring and literally canes the ever-loving dog shit out of this man. Um, we get our introduction from Rob Van Dam, who is over like Rover, obviously ECW original in the Hammerstein Ballroom in New York. And then out comes John Cena, and I've never heard somebody be so detested and booed in my entire life as John Cena was coming into this. Um, a sign that now gets fucking parodied at every big feud pay-per-view, I feel like now, was the sign from the Raptor that said, if yeah. Cena wins, we riot. Um, this happened in 2006. I'm a freshman going into my sophomore year of high school. This was like the first pay-per-view of the summer, so me and my friends were at my house, staying up late, watching this, because this was a TVMA pay-per-view, so WWE had put it on later than normal. You can actually see a glimpse of that sign behind RVD in this picture. Um, but the ECW crowd did not disappoint. They made it feel like if John Cena were to go over in this match, yeah. they were legitimately going to tear the arena apart uh there was a part in the beginning where john cena gets introduced and he does his you know if i miss throw my shit into the crowd where i think it was no less than seven minutes of john cena throwing his crowd or shirt into the crowd the crowd yep. throwing it back at john cena and he tried to throw it every which way possible to the point where he literally just said fuck it and started the match with the shirt being thrown back into the ring which became a little bit of a um, trend they throw it back you know with him yeah yeah uh which is something that we yeah. saw just recently on dynamite where uh penta's mask got ripped off and the fans right started chanting, exactly. throw it back throw it back this match had everything you'd expect out of your average ecw match even though you had joey styles reminding you every five minutes that this is the first time the WWE Championship is being defended under extreme rules on an easy Yeah, they kind of pimped that to death. But um, the cool part is the finish for me. This is height of my teenage angst. So the threat of constant, legit violence was exciting to me. The match was amazing. You had RVD, who is a competitor like no other, versus a once-in-a-generation talent like John Cena for the biggest prize of them all, you're not expecting John Cena to drop the title. Especially not the RVD. But then he had some help from a man wearing a trench coat and a biker helmet being Edge coming in, spearing John Cena in the middle of the match that helped RVD pick up the pinfall. Um, and all of a sudden, now you have RVD as your new WWE champion 
coming on to the heels of ECW now being on sci-fi, which is a fucking disaster that I don't even want to talk about right now. Um, the only question that after this match was, what could have been? Uh, we all know shortly after this match taking place, RVD and Sabu. I mean, RVD is on brand for what happened. Gets caught in a car with Sabu higher than pigeon tits. And Vince McMahon and the WWE being a public trade company at this time had no choice but to strip RVD yeah. of that title. And he never really rose back into prominence the way you think RVD could have. That's that's the one glaring thing. There are so many parallels between this match, I think, and the Cena Punk match at Money in the Bank that I was on my list earlier. Mm-hmm. The the reaction to Cena coming out, just like you could you could say this one or or that one. I think this one Cena got even more booze, which is Cena in Chicago against Punk is hard to top, but yeah. this one was even even more so at the Hammerstein Ballroom. And obviously, this one doesn't quite have the historical significance, unfortunately, because of what happened with RVD a few days later, and Sabu, uh, and that charge that he would catch. But just in the moment, yeah, it, it's every bit as impactful, I think, as that CM Punk match at Money in the Bank. It's it's tremendous. You don't expect RVD to win, yet in hindsight, how would they go another direction? There's no way Cena's getting out of that building alive. He's got that kind of heat. No. So it's fantastic. And of course Paul Heyman counting the three is also fantastic. Uh yeah, just such a good match. And and really fun. Really fun. I've never been an ECW guy. I never was. I watched WCW and then transitioned into the WWF as WCW started to suck. Um, ECW was on TNN, and I a couple of times I turned it on, and I just had no interest in it. But the, this was obviously a really fun singular pay-per-view. For WWE to put on, I'm sure Paul Heyman was on Cloud9 there. It looks like he was. And a great a great little show where just anything, anything WWE, it didn't matter that it was Eugene. Anything WWE was going to get booed the fuck out of. And it, that was great. It was fun to see. It was a fun watch. The match, the entire show was a fun watch. And I, you know, and the thing for me is I grew up in the Northeast. I remember going to ECW shows at the Blair County War Memorial. Yes, they still ran shows at places like War Memorials and Bingo Halls. That is why ECW is referred to as the Bingo Hall promotion that could. Um, but I think the reason why this hit number one is because ECW is such a huge part of my childhood being from the same state that ECW started in. That it was cool to see it get its come up and send its right off into the sunset because let's face it ecw on sci-fi was a bullshit way for sci-fi network to plug whatever weird shit they had going on in the network and the wrestling programming um the hardcore justice pay-per-view where tna tried to do this exact same thing just they couldn't use the name ecw was absolute bullshit other than the fact that they got tech nine to remix riot maker which is one of my favorite songs for that pay-per-view and then of course you know you have your hardcore homecomings and things like that which 
grand scheme of things now is just absolutely fucking depressing thinking of the number of people in this picture alone who yeah. are no longer with us uh so yeah this was the end all be all ecw absolutely all right that will do it for this episode of the car this is part two is done we will see you next week uh not sure exactly what uh we're gonna do for the card next week me and tony will talk about it but we will see you next tuesday we'll drop part one part two will be on thursday we'll do it the same way again though if you watch the full episode of the buckle bomb show on that drops on sunday before the entire thing will be on there all right that'll do it for the card we'll see you later All right, let me get out of this. That was uh, that was fun. It still went a little longer than than uh, we went, dove pretty deep into each match more than I think we should have maybe. But hey, whatever. We uh, still in two parts, and we'll make that work. All right, we'll go on and move on to our quick jabs of the week. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to talk about here. I, you brought up. Um, uh, Drew McIntyre, he apparently has uh, been dealing with a back injury, but he will still uh, be in his match at Clash of the Castle against Roman Reigns. Anything you want to talk about there? Yeah, you know, this is uh, one of those damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of situations because this is a match that has been so hyped. But let's say, worst case scenario, something happens where Drew McIntyre can't compete at Clash of the Castle. What a time to be Killer Cross. And I'm still going to call him Killer Cross. It's still his Twitter handle. And I have a feeling with WWE pushing towards this eventual TV 14 run, you got to go with the Killer Cross. Yeah, it's even even if McIntyre's not hurt, it's interesting to see what they're doing with Carrying with, uh, Cross here. Obviously, pushing for a match against Roman Reigns. Interesting to see. Uh,. On the, and they could push Carrion if they have Carrion push Roman to the brink. I don't think there's any way Cross goes over Roman, but if they could have Cross in whatever match, whatever pay per view they decide to uh, have that match at, that could really, really make or break Carrion Cross. We'll see what happens there. Uh. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about? Wasn't there something you wanted to discuss with uh, Bray Wyatt? Yes, yes. Uh, it's recently coming out. Seems like it's coming out more and more every day now that Vince McMahon is no longer in the top of the WWE. Um, reports of the friction that took place backstage that inevitably re- resulted in Bray Wyatt's release. Um, apparently, Bray was not happy with the direction of the Fiend character. To which I can't blame him. You know, there was that god-awful no-contest ending at Hell in a Cell against Seth Rollins. Uh, Goldberg fucking planted the Fiend at his height in Saudi Arabia. So you had that going on. So every time Bray Wyatt would bring up his disdain for what was happening to essentially his baby. It's no secret Bray Wyatt and Tom Savini, the legendary horror effects designer was the people who designed the yeah. fiend from the ground up um 
Savini, you may remember as Cock Gun in From Dust Till Dawn. Uh, but so every time he'd bring this up to Vince McMahon about how much he hated the direction of the character, Vince McMahon would respond by making fun of Bray Wyatt's weight. So if you wonder why Bray Wyatt has been gone for so long and why he hasn't signed anything anywhere, even talked about coming back to WWE yet, I'm pretty sure this is great indicators. I know for myself personally, I wouldn't want shit to do with yeah, that company after that either. For sure. And certainly uh, his mental health has, has got to be number one here. If, uh, if there's some issues, lingering issues with that or whatever may be the case that that might have caused, he's... He's got to take care of himself first there. And hopefully, uh, hopefully, and again, we talk about this again, the culture behind the scenes in WWE can continue to improve, hopefully in a dramatic fashion now that Vince is gone. Uh, was there anything else? Uh, we can discuss uh, the Goldberg, Goldberg comments on Talk is Jericho. Did you want to talk about that? Yeah, we could breeze by him really quickly uh, in case anybody missed it. Goldberg was... The guest on Talk is Jericho. This one was especially exciting because this was TIJ's 900th episode. Um, and during the interview, they broke down uh, the, both their respect and adulation for Hulk Hogan. Uh, they also went into details about what surrounded the fist fight that took place behind scenes of Chris Jericho and Goldberg. Um that inevitably spilled out into the concourse of the arena during the show. Uh, as we, me and Bobby talked about privately earlier, if this would have happened today, we would have footage of it because everybody has a camera, which is crazy to think that in today's WWE, that could even potentially happen. Um, they uh, wouldn't say who it was, but they alluded to seeds of deceit being planted in their heads uh, by somebody backstage who was politicking, when in reality... Let this be a lesson for everybody out there. If you just go to talk to somebody one-on-one -on -one, instead of just saying you're going to fight somebody, this would have never happened. Uh, and then the biggest takeaway from this that was the hugest shocker was Goldberg's remorse for what happened between him and Bret Hart. He goes into a lengthy conversation about how much it hurts him emotionally that Bret Hart won't accept his apology. Uh, he also goes into the fact that he's wrestled Chris Jericho a million times, and they actually at one point had legitimate heat with each other. Uh, but Chris Jericho validated that he was always safe and taken care of very well in the ring when he would wrestle Goldberg. But uh, Goldberg also states that he has apologized and attempted to apologize to Bret Hart more times than anybody should try and receive an apology, and for that he will no longer be trying to apologize to Brett. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a very good uh, show. I need to go back and listen to it. I haven't. Uh, another show, another podcast I think we can talk about is, I don't know if either one of us has listened to Ric Flair's podcast post-last match. Uh, that's something I definitely want to go back and listen to as well. And some news bits have come out about that, about Ric Flair being dehydrated during his last match. Mm -hmm. uh, but I did listen to the Jeff Jarrett uh, podcast uh, My World post-match and that was a very good listen to they go behind the scenes of a lot of what went on uh, Ric Flair looking like he was dead 
was a lot of the plan going into the match and, and a lot of stuff like that. And they also talk about putting together the storyline and even their sort of kayfabe podcast uh, the week prior, which was a fantastic listen that Tony made sure I listened to beforehand and I did and it was great. Um, so that's another thing to, to listen for. Um, I have also really enjoyed a Kevin Nash's new podcast, Click This. Uh, I know Tony has not quite so much. He listened to 10 minutes of it and then turned it off because of a very specific reason that we don't need to get into here. But <laughs> now that I got him thinking about it, he's he's seething. But, but uh, I've really enjoyed the show, and there have been some really good wrestling tidbits on there too. And some more because it's Sean Oliver and it's got more of that co- kayfabe commentaries kind of feel. A little more loosey-goosey, a little a little more uh, risque sometimes and with some of the things they talk about. Uh, so, you know, a lot of your ad-free show stuff and Talk is Jericho. All good listens this week. All right. Anything else you want to talk about? Nope. Uh, all right. That'll do it for this episode of the Buckle Bomb Show. Please give us a like, share. If you feel like we're good enough for other people to see, I hope so. And subscribe to make sure you don't miss more episodes coming soon. Uh, Speaking of coming soon, I am deep into editing Qualified Human. Tony is loading me up with work on editing and putting together shows uh, and doing interviews. I've got so much editing work ahead of me. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to do it all, but I will. And soon, we'll, we'll have an announcement soon of when the first episode of Qualified Human will drop. We'll see when that happens. Tony, love you, brother. Bobby, and for everyone out there at home, go ahead and comment on this video too, man. That's one thing you left out. Be a part Please. of our conversation. Let us know what you like. Let us know what you didn't like. Let us know what you guys want to hear us talk about because we're open to all ends. And we, as you can tell, we have a wealth of wrestling knowledge between the two of us. Somehow, it's like you built a hybrid monster version of Cornette that just watches everything. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, but without the uh, dehumanizing of some people. But, yeah, but uh, yeah, please comment down below. Let us know what you think we want to have a discussion with you. Absolutely. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the Buckle Bomb Show. We'll see you later. Love you, buddy. The preceding announcement has been paid for by Bomb Media Productions.